Hey everybody, Aaron Bishop here. Just wanted to let you know, I have written a book. It has been published and it is available now on Amazon.com. Name of the book is The Power of Passover, A Christian's Guide to the Festival of Redemption. If you want to know what Passover is about, just a really deep dive into the festival, into its history, and into why we're where we're at today. And even an instruction guide on how to hold your own Passover. It's got everything in it. So if you'd like to check that out, go to Amazon.com and search for The Power of Passover. And now we return you to your regularly scheduled program. I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we examine the metaphors present in the Bible and then extrapolate them into our own lives. This week we finished the text of the Ketuvah as given by Hashem to Israel at Mount Sinai. As a reminder, a ketuvah is the modern name for the ancient practice of creating a marriage contract. And as we've spoken of recently, these last few chapters have all been delivered in the form of a ketuvah with Israel. And since chapter 19, the text has many allusions to this meeting of Israel and Hashem as a wedding. And this allusion is one that's referred to and repeated throughout the rest of Scripture, primarily by the prophets. For example, Isaiah 54, 5-6. For your maker is your husband, Hashem of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth, for Hashem has called you like a woman, forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when you were refused, declares your God. Or Isaiah 62, 4-5. No longer are you called forsaken, and no longer is your land called deserted, but you shall be called Chepzibah, and your land married. For Hashem shall delight in you, and your land be married. For as a young man marries a maiden, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And Hosea 2, 14-17 Therefore see, I am alluring her, and shall lead her into the wilderness, and shall speak to her heart, and give to her vineyards from there, and the valley of Achor as a door of expectation. And there she shall respond as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up out of the land of Mitzrayim, and it shall be in that day, declares Hashem, that you call me my husband, and no longer call me my Lord. And I shall remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. Or Jeremiah 3.8 And I saw that for all the causes of which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and committed whoring too. The prophets, all throughout, use this metaphor of Hashem being a husband and Israel being a wife. 
And it's through this, it's right here in Exodus 20 through 23, that the covenant is being sealed. There is this accompanying contract of marriage that's being offered. And the contract is contained in the chapters of Exodus 20 through 23. This is the contract that we are going to be finishing today. Now, this ketuvah, it began with the ten words, the foundation of the ideal of love that is encompassed in this ketuvah and in all of the Torah. For it breaks down to love your God, your husband, and love your neighbor, those who have also bound themselves to the God of Israel. Now, it might be helpful to view our fellow believers as fellow cells of sorts that make up a larger body, and that body being compared to the body of Messiah in the writings of Paul. But in this context, it could be compared to as if other people in the worldwide community were fellow cells in the body of this bride. We are a connected community that requires all of the other cells to live, and we're not whole without being connected to those cells around us. And as the bride of God, we're given instructions on just how to act as the bride, both as an individual and in relationship with the community or those fellow cells around us. And those ten words, the ten commandments as they're usually referred to, they offer this initial way in which this ideal of love is to be lived out. One, recognize that Hashem is, and remember always what He has done for you. Two, do not commit adultery with Hashem, your husband or your God, by worshiping other gods. Third, do not misrepresent your godly husband to the world. Act in a way that's honoring of His character, reputation, and qualities. Four, declare to the world your allegiance to your heavenly spouse by having a weekly date with him. Spend a day in each other's company, and don't prevent any other cells in the body of the bride from participating in this date as well. Five, do not bring dishonor on your earthly creators, because doing so dishonors your heavenly creator. Six, don't deny in the existence of any other cell that surrounds you, whether they're part of the same body or not. Seven, don't profane your earthly covenants through adultery. Eight, don't destroy the name of another by telling lies about them. Nine, don't take what doesn't belong to you. And ten, don't desire the situation that God has given to another. And it's with these ten words that we're given a table of contents for all else that we read in the Torah and throughout Scripture. In this ketuvah, it's no exception. Each of the commands that's contained in this ketuvah, they fall under one or more of the ten words that were declared from the mouth of Hashem in the hearing of all of Israel. And last week, we began to examine this expansion of the ten words into some real-world ancient Near East examples and case studies that were to act as the foundation of love and justice in the community. In these commands, we saw some amazingly brazen and countercultural to the ancient Near East stances taken by Hashem. Things like, women have rights. They are to be cared for and loved. They are more than simply property. They are treasures. They are people. They are loved. These ideas were contrary to every thought of the ancient world. Alongside this, we also read that slaves also have rights. Slavery should not be entered into through kidnapping of one person and making them serve another. And a person who finds themselves in the position of the slave, they should not have this be their only hope for the rest of their lives, unless the life of a slave actually suits them. Slaves are to be given the option of freedom or to remain a slave. 
This was the slave's choice, not the master's. And we read things like victims are to receive justice, no matter the status or the station of the victim, no matter the status or the station of the perpetrator. It doesn't matter if the victim is one of these unprotected classes in the ancient Near East. It doesn't matter if it's a woman, if it's a slave, or even an unborn child. All victims are to receive justice, no matter who they are. And all perpetrators, likewise, are also to receive justice, no matter who they are. And victimization can occur in many ways. As we saw, it can occur in an accident, or it can occur on purpose. It can occur in the form of a theft, an injury, or a death. It can occur at the hand of a person or their property. And it's the duty of every person to protect their neighbors from possible victimization. And victimization can occur in more ways than simply towards other humans. People can attempt to victimize God as well. And through it all, in every way, it's incumbent upon us always to act in the image of Hashem, to bear His name truly. And this week we will see this theme continued, how to live in relationship to a God who has taken you in a covenant of marriage, one that you have agreed to live for. This week continues the expectations that are part of this relationship, but it also provides something more. This week we read some of the benefits of this relationship. So let's read this Parsha and then we can discuss these topics in much greater detail. Exodus 23 Do not bring a false report. Do not put your hand with the wrong to be a malicious witness. Do not follow a crowd to do evil, nor bear witness in a strife so as to turn aside after many, to turn aside what is right. And do not favor a poor man in his strife. When you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall certainly return it to him. When you see the donkey of him who hates you lying under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall certainly help him. Do not turn aside the right ruling of your poor in his strife. Keep yourself far from a false matter, and do not kill the innocent and the righteous, for I do not declare the wrong right. And do not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the seeing one and twists the words of the righteous. And do not oppress a sojourner, as you yourselves know the heart of a sojourner, because you were sojourners in the land of Mitzrayim. And for six years you are to sow your land, and shall gather its increase. But the seventh year you are to let it rest, and shall leave it, and the poor of your people shall eat. And what they leave the beasts of the field eat. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive yard. Six days you are to do your work, and on the seventh day you rest in order that your ox and your donkey might rest, and the son of your female servant and the sojourner be refreshed. And in all that I have said to you, take heed, and make no mention of the name of other mighty ones. Let it not be heard from your mouth. Three times in the year you are to celebrate a festival to me. Guard the festival of Matzot. Seven days you eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the new moon of Aviv. For in it you came out of Mitzrayim, and do not appear before me empty-handed. And the festival of the harvest, the firstfruits of your labors, which you have sown in the field, and the festival of the ingathering at the outgoing of the year, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times a year all your males are to appear before the master Hashem. Do not slaughter the blood of my sacrifices with leavened bread, and the fat of my festival shall not remain until morning. Bring the first of the firstfruits of your land into the house of Hashem, your Elohim. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. See, I am sending a messenger before you to guard you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. 
Be on guard before him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he is not going to pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you diligently obey his voice and shall do all that I speak, then I shall be an enemy to your enemies and a distresser to those who distress you. For my messenger shall go before you, and shall bring you into the Amorites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I shall cut them off. Do not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works. But without fail overthrow them, and without fail break down their pillars. And you shall serve Hashem your Elohim, and he shall bless your bread and your water, and I shall remove sickness from your midst. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land, and I shall fill the number of your days. I shall send my fear before you and cause confusion among all the peoples to whom you come, and make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I shall send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Chivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before you. I shall not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become a waste and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little I shall drive them out from before you, until you have increased and you inherit the land. And I shall set your border from the Sea of Reeds to the Sea of the Philistines, and from the wilderness to the river. For I shall give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. Do not make a covenant with them, nor with their gods. Let them not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me when you serve their gods, when it becomes a snare to you. So at the end of the chapter that we examined last week, we saw a shift occur in the main focus of the text. It went from how we are to interact between neighbors and brothers and fellow cells, to use that previous metaphor, to an expansion of our own relationship with Hashem. This week that focus continues as this chapter opens, and as it opens, we discover some instructions for acting in the name of God, or not taking His name in vain. And the way that this is done in these texts is to not bear false witness against another. And for the first nine verses of this chapter, this is where the focus lies. Not just in not bearing false witness, but rather through an exhortation to act in justice at all times. And this ideal of justice is one that was spoken of last week when the text was focusing on the victim and the perpetrator. This week, the topic of justice is approached from the viewpoint of how to accurately administer justice. Whether from the standpoint of a witness who holds the life of another in your hands, to the standpoint of a judge. And it's here that we see clearly that justice is to be administered equally across all classes, statuses, and realms. Honorable or dishonorable, rich or poor, man, woman, or slave, friend or enemy. In the case of justice, all are to receive it equally. And especially do not ever administer mob justice, as that is no kind of justice at all. And whatever you do, do not condemn an innocent man. But when necessary, justice must be carried out against even the most powerful of men, the most popular and the most beloved of men. We are not to favor a man simply because of who he is or what he represents. We are to search diligently to discover the truth of a matter. And once the truth is known, Justice is to be done for all parties involved. And if we read on in Scripture, we discover that in the Gospels, that it was the people who upheld the Torah as their guiding principles that engaged in nearly every form of these unjust practices in the condemning of Yeshua to death. In Exodus 23.1 we read, Do not bring a false report and do not put your hand with the wrong to be a malicious witness. 
And then if we turn to the New Testament and the account of the trial of Yeshua in Mark 14, 55 through 59, it says, And the chief priests and all the council were seeking witnesses against Yeshua to put him to death, and they were finding none. For many bore false witness against him, but their evidences did not agree. And some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him saying, I shall destroy this dwelling place that is made with hands, and within three days I shall build another made without hands. And not even then did their witness agree. This is a direct overturning of Exodus 23.1 that we just read. If we continue on in Exodus 23.2, we read, Do not follow a crowd to do evil, nor bear false witness in strife, so as to turn aside after many, to turn aside what is right. And in the trial of Yeshua in John 18.38-40, And Pilate said to him, What is the truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a habit that I shall release someone to you at the Pesach. Do you wish then that I release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all shouted again, saying, No, not this one, but Barabbas. And Barabbas was a robber. Then a few verses later, in John 19, 5 through 6, it says, Then Yeshua came outside wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, See the man! So when the chief priests and officers saw him, they shouted, saying, Impale him! Impale him! And Pilate said to them, You take him and impale him, for I find no guilt in him. In both of these instances, it was mob justice that released the true criminal, and it was mob justice that declared Yeshua's sentence, a direct overturning of Exodus 23.2. If we continue on in verse 7, we read, Keep yourselves far from a false matter, and do not kill the innocent and the righteous, for I do not declare the wrong right. And in the trial of Yeshua in verse 6 of John 19, that was just what we read. Yeshua declared innocent by the ruling authorities, and yet the authorities gave permission to continue on the path of destroying an innocent life. And it was the religious leaders that wished to continue in this course of action. They were the ones who desired to kill Yeshua. And then in Exodus 23, 8, And do not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the seeing one and twists the words of the righteous. And if we look back on the trial of Yeshua, this is what started the whole thing off. In Matthew 26, 14-16, the one of the twelve, called Judah from Kariot, went to the chief priests and said, What would you give me to deliver him to you? And they counted out to him thirty pieces of silver. And from then on, he was seeking an occasion to deliver him up. From beginning to end, the trial of Yeshua was a miscarriage of justice. And why? Because those who initiated the trial began with their end goal in mind. Mark 14.55, the chief priests and all the council were seeking witnesses against Yeshua to put him to death, and they were finding none. Those who were the ones who were first to declare their own righteousness, those who were the ones that were entrusted with the task of administering justice, those who were to be the representatives of Hashem and His name on this earth, they began with their end goal in mind. They didn't like Yeshua, and so their goal was to kill Him. And because they had their goal in mind when they started, justice from one end to the other was perverted. And it's this attitude that pervades our world bribes to turn ahead, 
Justice begun with the goal in mind before a trial is ever begun. False witnesses being given a voice on a world stage. Accusations being given the weight of law in the media. And mob justice being enacted and enforced on social media. There are hundreds of examples I could choose from where we could see these things in action today. And I'm sure that we can all think of examples of these things occurring in our world right now. But for the sake of avoiding undue controversy at this moment, I'm choosing not to point out any of these specific examples. The controversy that I choose to engage in in this platform is one that is spiritual in nature, not political. Now, one way that I will get political is when people hijack scripture to use it for political gain or to push a political agenda. And in verse 9, among others, it's a great example of this. This verse Exodus 23.9 and Leviticus 19.34 and several others have been hijacked by the modern American pro-immigration movement. And I use this term pro-immigration loosely because the use of this term presents a false dichotomy that those who oppose illegal immigration are in fact against immigration in any capacity. And that's just not the case. Now, those who use these verses in this way, they demonstrate a complete lack of understanding of Scripture, specifically of the Hebrew language. They're engaging in what I call soundbite theology, and for the worst reason possible, political gain. What those who tout these verses as being pro-immigration and against national borders fail to understand is the Hebrew distinctions that are present in the language. Not all foreigners are on the same footing in the Hebrew. Now, we went over this back in Exodus 12, but I want to run through it once again, because there are several words used here to describe people who are not part of your nation that are used in the Hebrew language. First of all, there's the Azrak, okay? This is the baseline. The Azrak is the native-born. He's a blood member of Israel, a son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then there is the Nahar. The Nahar is a hostile foreigner. This is a person with different gods, different culture, and has no desire to be part of Israel. Many times the Nahar is openly hostile to the way of life of those native to the land, and the Nahar will seek to overthrow them. The third is the Toshav. This is your physical neighbor. This is the one who lives next door or lives nearby, nothing more. This is not the neighbor that Yeshua was talking about in the New Testament when he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. No, this is, this is just the person who happens to dwell physically in proximity to you. Nothing more. There's no desire to be more. You just simply live next to each other. Now, this person will have a shared interest with you in that they want what is best for the neighborhood and for the local area in which you live. But they could have a completely different culture, completely different gods, completely different way of doing things. The only thing that connects you is proximity. They don't want to overthrow you. But then again, they're not specifically interested in advancing your goals either. Next is the Shahir. The Shahir is the professional associate who's from another land. This is the one that you deal with in, a, in business and who has a shared interest economically. But outside of that economic partnership, there's very limited connection. This is a trade partner or the day laborer who works for you. And finally, there is the Ger. The Ger is a foreigner who is friendly in every way. They may not seek to take on your identity. They may not even seek to take on your gods. But they do seek your good. 
They seek the benefit of all. They, they are the ones who want the best for the people that live around them. They are friendly to everyone in every way. And I would submit that the Good Samaritan story is talking about the gare. Now guess which type of foreigner or alien is being used in these verses that are being used to advocate the agenda of the removal of national borders? Well, that's right. It's the gare. It's that friendly foreigner. These passages are not speaking of the Nahar, that hostile foreigner. They're not speaking of the Toshav, your physical neighbor who's of another country. They're not even speaking of the Shahir, that professional associate that you have from another country. This is speaking of that friendly foreigner. Very specifically does it use the word ger, the one who is friendly, who lives in the midst of your land. And it's specifically speaking of how to treat others who believe in the same God, regardless of their nationality or place of origin, those who act in his name, even if they don't always carry his name, as we see in the story of the Good Samaritan. It's not a command to allow your enemies to move in next door and set up shop and take you down. So I just wanted to point that out. This, these verses are being hijacked by political agendas, but they, they're not saying what those who wish to use them think that they say. So beginning in verse 10, we read of the Sabbath applications once again. We read in chapter 21 of the Sabbath that exists for the slave and that the slave is to be set free in their seventh year. Here, in verses 10 and 11, we read of a Sabbath for the land. Six years work the land, and in the seventh, let it rest. And what's the result of this rest? Well, two results that are pointed out specifically in this chapter is that the poor of the land will eat. Once again, we see a heart for the poor being reflected in the pages of Scripture. The next thing that's pointed out is that the animals of the field will eat. God even cares that the animals have the chance and the opportunity to eat. He cares for them, too. Verse 12 then speaks of the weekly Sabbath once again. And this command to rest in this case is stated for the purpose of giving rest to the ox and the donkey, the refreshing of the slave and the servant. Again, the vulnerable are given rights in connection to their master. Verses 14 through 16 speak of the three pilgrimage festivals that we will learn a lot more about when we get to Leviticus chapter 23. For now, I simply want to recognize that these festivals, all seven of them from Leviticus 23, are connected to the Sabbath in a very real way. These three particular festivals are the three of the seven recounted in Leviticus 23 that require the men of the nation to make a journey to the place of Hashem which in the time of the tabernacle was wherever the tabernacle was. And in the time of the temple, it was Jerusalem alone. Where is it today? It's wherever your local community is, wherever the temple of God is and where his presence dwells. Now, if you're following along in your Bible, you will have noticed that I skipped right over verse 13. And that's because verse 13 is, again, one of those verses that has been hijacked and completely taken out of context and is used by many as a bludgeon and a cudgel to try to beat people down. Exodus 23.13 says this, And in all that I have said to you, take heed, and make no mention of the name of other gods. Let it not be heard from your mouth. Now, the question that I had as I examined this chapter is, why is this verse in the very middle of a series of commands that are dealing with the Sabbath. It doesn't seem to fit the theme of Sabbath. 
in some ways, it seems as if it was just like stuck in here for no real purpose. Unless, unless the Sabbath is connected to our testimony that we bear to the world of the God that we serve. Now, in a few months, we're going to go a lot deeper into the Sabbath, deeper than we have gone so far. But for now, we're simply going to stop and we're going to take notice. In Isaiah 28, which we've dwelt on to some degree over the past two weeks, there was a clear message that God says is contained in his Torah. But for Israel, it was as if God was speaking with a jabbering lip and a foreign tongue. Who remembers what that is? It's Isaiah 28, 11, 12. For with a jabbering lip and a foreign tongue, he speaks to this people, to whom he said, This is the rest, give rest to the weary, and this is the refreshing, but they would not hear. So the Sabbath is the ultimate description of this is the rest, give rest to the weary, and this is the refreshing. And it's through this practice of Sabbath that a person begins their declaration of the name of Hashem. Now, this verse is not speaking of not allowing the names of other gods to pass your lips in a very literal sense. Because if that were the case, then there are parts of Scripture that simply cannot be read out loud because they contain the names of other gods. For example, Leviticus 18.21, And do not give any of your offspring to pass through to, and do not profane the name of your God, I am Hashem. Now, that makes sense? No. Who is that talking about there? It's talking about Molech. The word Molech actually appears in Scripture. And if we are to literally interpret verse 13 to where we cannot allow the name of another God to pass our lips, we cannot read this verse accurately out loud. If we take this verse in this way, then we have a contradiction in Scripture as well. Because Psalm 44, 20-21 says, If we have forgotten the name of our God, or stretched out our hands to a foreign God, would God not search this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Now this psalm is talking about the people who are in dispersion being sent out into the world. And when they're out in this dispersion, if they forget the name of their God, and in their search for the true God of Israel, they happen to stretch their hands out to another God and call, call on his name while intending to search for the God of Israel, will God not search it out and hear what this person says? It's saying that God won't hold it against us if we ignorantly use the name of another God. He knows what we mean. He knows who we search for. And in the end, his sheep will know his voice and will follow him. So what do we do with this verse if it's not talking about literally speaking the name of another God? Well, I would suggest first, instead of imposing limits on whether or not you can allow the names of other gods to pass your lips, rather, we can understand this to be about swearing by the name of another god, using the name of another god in your vows, praying to another god, seeking the face and the name, as we now understand the word name, of another god, or even acting in the image of another god. This verse doesn't prohibit the pronunciation of the days of the weeks or the months and the years. I mean, after all, Thursday is Thor's day, Friday is Freya's day, Saturday is the day of Saturn, the god, not the planet. January is the month of Janus. March was derived from the Roman god Mars. April is an Etruscan borrow from the Greek Aphrodite. The word cereal is from the Italian god Ceres. And examples of this go on and on and on. If we take this verse at its most literal, 
Our ability to communicate in English becomes hampered to the point where we're unable to even live in the world, let alone be of the world. And if this were the case, then the month names that are recorded in the books of Kings, 1 Kings 6 mentions a month by the name of Ziph, and 1 Kings 8 speaks of the month Etanim. These month names find their origins in the name of Canaanite deities. Now, I pray that I made my point. This is not about forming your mouth and your tongue in such a way as to make a sound that is the same as the moniker of another god. This is about memorializing or even swearing by the name of another god. And it's nestled between the Sabbath commands because this is the image that you are to live in. This is the memorial of the god that you serve. Don't memorialize another god in another way. So then continuing on in verse 18 through 19, we read several other commands that seem disconnected in some way. Verse 17, do not sacrifice with leavened bread and don't allow the fat of a sacrifice to remain until morning. Verse 18, bring in your first fruits and don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. Now the last one is a bit touchy and I'm choosing not to address it at this time until we read the final iteration of this command when we get to it in Deuteronomy. You can call this my scapegoat, if you will. I just don't want to open that can of worms just yet. Okay, so each of these four commands, they are connected, however, to worship practices. They're all extrapolations of how to serve and to worship Hashem. Each is meaningful, but they're all repeated in other places. And so for the sake of time, we're going to deal with them as we get to them in those other places. And that brings us to verses 20 through 33. And it's at this point that we get back to this idea of the ketuvah, this marriage contract that's ancient. Now, the ketuvah, again, it's just the most modern version of the marriage contract found in Judaism. Now, in the modern Hebrew wedding ceremony, one part of the wedding ceremony is a pronunciation of seven blessings over the bride and the groom. Now, this tradition, it can only be traced back to around 1600, and the origin of this tradition, it's not that easy to trace. But in the upcoming passages that finish off this ketuvah, if we pay attention, there are seven promises that are made for the people of Hashem. And it's possible, I think, that this idea of seven blessings spoken over the bride and the groom was something that was recognized was occurring in this passage, and so it was pulled into modern ceremonies as a way of acknowledging that when Hashem married Israel, he too gave seven blessings. So what are those seven blessings? Well, let's look through these upcoming verses and find out. So the first is found in verse 30, in that a messenger will go before the people to lead the people to the land and to lead them. Now, with many of these promises, there are warnings or conditions on them that we shouldn't miss. In the case of the messenger, the warning is issued, Obey his voice and do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon transgression, for the name of Hashem is in him. Now the question is, who is this messenger? Is it a messenger that leads the people through the wilderness? Uh, If so, it could be seen as the cloud and the pillar of fire that goes before the people could be this messenger. Or perhaps Moses is this messenger whose God's name has been put in, and that is to lead the people. I don't think so, but maybe. Uh, Some have even taken this passage and turned it into a messianic prophecy, that there will be a messenger who will lead us into the promised land in this messianic age. Eh, maybe. 
Alternatively, we could actually just look at Scripture and see if we discover a messenger that leads the people into the land. And if we do, we stumble upon Joshua 5, 13 through 15. In his verses it says, And it came to be that when Yehoshua was by Yericho, that he lifted his eyes and he looked, and he saw a man standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Yehoshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, for I have now come as captain of the hosts of Hashem. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did obeisance and said to him, What is my master saying to his servant? And the captain of the host of Hashem said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Now we don't read much more of this messenger, and the specific fulfillment isn't clear that this is the messenger that this is speaking about. Hashem promises a messenger is going to go before them into the land to ensure their success in the battle. And as soon as they step in the land, guess what? There's an angel there to lead them. The second promise then comes in the form of a conditional statement in verse 22. If you obey his voice, then. So this is an if then. If you obey the voice of this messenger, then Hashem will be an enemy to the enemies of Israel and will distress those who distress you. The messenger will go before the people will cut off the nations that currently occupy the land. And then comes a follow-up warning. Do not worship their gods, but destroy their idols. The third through the sixth promises are found in two verses back to back. Verse 25 to 26. And if we read on, we'll find out that Leviticus and Deuteronomy also contain these promises, and they are also conditional. Here, the condition is everything that has preceded these promises, the obeying the messenger and listening to his voice. So after following and obeying the messenger and breaking down the idols and the altars of the nations and then serving Hashem alone, then blessing three. He will bless your bread and your water. No famine, you won't go hungry. Number four, he will remove sickness from your midst. Five, none will miscarry or be barren. Six, the number of a person's days will be filled. And the final blessing is one that spans the scope of verse 27 through 30. His fear will go before the people. Hornets will go before the people. Now, this will not be immediate because the Hebrew people will not be able to occupy the land of the enemy right away. This is to be a gradual increase in occupation. To do so otherwise would leave the land abandoned and wild animals would overtake the land and cause a much larger problem. Also, the people would then have to not just clear the land of wild animals, but they would also have to fix up houses that are run down without anybody living in them to maintain them. Roads would fall into disrepair, fields would become overrun with weeds, and the need would come to be to replow and to replant. Without this general removal of the occupants of the land, the promises that God made in other places would never come to pass. Deuteronomy 6, 10-11 says, And it shall be when Hashem your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Yitzhak, and to Yaakov, to give you great and good cities which you did not build, and houses filled with all kinds of goods which you did not fill, and wells dug which you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you shall eat and be satisfied. These promises, the promise here and the promise in Deuteronomy 6, they work together. The slow removal of the occupants 
accompanies the promise that Israel, when they conquer, they will live in houses and eat of crops that they did not build or plant. Without one, the other simply could not happen. And the final part of the seventh promise is, until you have increased and inherit the land. The fear, the hornets, the gradual removal, this was to continue until Israel inherited the land that had been promised to them. What land, you ask? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Because the boundaries are recounted in verse 31. Go ahead and read it for yourself. Then finally, in verse 32 through 33, we read the final warning of this ketuvah. Do not make a covenant with the people of the land or their gods. They were to be driven out of the land. And if we read forward to the book of Joshua, these commands were not kept. Israel makes a covenant with the inhabitants of the land in Joshua 9, 15-18. And Yehoshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And it came to be at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, that they heard that they were their neighbor who dwelt near them. And the children of Israel set out and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Givon and Kephirah and Be'erot and Kiryat Arim. But the children of Israel did not strike them, because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by Hashem God of Israel, and all the congregation grumbled against the rulers. Israel did not drive all of the inhabitants out of the land. Not only did they make a covenant with one of the inhabitants of the land, in the book of Judges, Chapter 1, verse 28 through 33, we read, And it came to be when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites into compulsory labor, but they did not completely drive them out. Neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer, so the Canaanites dwelt in their midst in Gezer. Neither did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, so the inhabitants of Nahalol, so the Canaanites dwelt in their midst and became compulsory labor. Neither did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko, nor the inhabitants of Zidon, or Achlav, or Achziv, nor Chelva, nor Afik, nor Rechov. So the Asherites dwelt in the midst of the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, because they did not drive them out. Neither did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, nor the inhabitants of Beit Danat. But they dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, and the inhabitants of Beit Shemesh and Beit Danat became compulsory labor for them. And because of this, because they didn't drive the Canaanites out of the land, the final words of this chapter, this warning of do not do this, comes to pass. They will make you sin against me, and you will serve their gods, and they will become a snare to you. Israel did not obey the terms of this covenant. They did not hold true to the expectations placed on them. They did not keep true to the Ketuvah that they declared three times, once in chapter 19 and twice in the very next chapter, all that Hashem has said we will do. Israel failed in their keeping of the covenant, and they paid the price. But was it only the terms of this final part of the Ketuvah that they failed in? Not at all. They failed in all parts of this Ketuvah. They did not release their slaves on the yearly cycles as they were supposed to. They did not act in justice among the people of their land. Kings and the rich and the honorable got away with murder. They did not protect the weak and the vulnerable from those who would prey on them. They did not live up to any part of this ketuvah at all. Israel made a relationship with Hashem about religion. 
They kept the letter of the commands sure without ever addressing the spirit of the Torah. And they stumbled and they fell backwards and they fell. And these promises, they're so important. They're so important for people who call Hashem God. Because these promises, these are not promises that have passed away. All seven of these blessings are still in effect. They're promises that still live on. They live on in the promise and the hope of a new creation. They live on in the return to Eden that has been revealed throughout the pages of Scripture. And the promise continues even today. And we find our way into these promises in one way. By entering into the covenant through the blood of the Lamb. And we find the fulfillment of these promises accomplished in all who live in His kingdom. And one day we will see these promises unleashed on the entire world. But until then, we have a contract. We have a ketubah that is to be lived up to. There is an expectation that is placed on the people of God. And as we derishchai, as we seek the life that is to be found in Scripture, we discover that it is found in the ketubah covenant between the God of all creation and any who would enter into this covenant. And we are all invited into this covenant. We are all welcome as we derash chai. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derash Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Derish Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.